I want you to invite you to open your Bibles, get out your phones, and maybe Google if you don't know where these things are. One verse this morning, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Romans 8, if you're Googling it, just type Romans, the number 8, the colon sign, 28. And uh, it'll pop right up. One verse this morning I want to I talk about. While you're turning there, um, Kevin's really profoundly um, hopeful, but also very heartbreaking story. Uh, and the Easter story. These two stories have been rolling through my mind this week. And um, if you don't know me, I've got a little bit of an irreverent mind, so I'm sorry about this. But I, the, the two came together, and I couldn't help but think of my favorite movie growing up, Ocean's Eleven. Obviously. Maybe you haven't seen it's like a really old movie, and then they remade it back in like 2001. But the movie is about this heist that is pulled off by this mishmash of like bandits, these like professional crime people. And they all band together with an elaborate plan to take down this Las Vegas casino, uh, just purely out of spite and to get the girl. Like that's the whole plot. I know, it's not redeeming. We shouldn't be talking about this on Easter. I'm sorry. And uh, there's an A-list cast. But the writing, the writing is so good, you guys. It's so good. Uh, it's really what makes the movie shine. At every scene, you have this criminal who you root for. You don't know why you root for him. He's a criminal. And he's developing this elaborate plan to take down this casino. And, and, and at every moment, there's this plot twist. There's something that happens to this guy, Danny Ocean, that you think the game's up. This is it. They can't overcome this obstacle. One scene that sticks out of my mind, because I know you all have seen this movie. You're right there with me. That's fine. But one, one scene that we're, it's playing out in my mind is when Danny gets taken captive by the security guard at the casino, and he's put in this room with this giant, beefy bouncer. And you think to yourself, well, how's this? You know, he's going to get killed right here. Like, how's this going to work out? Only to find out that the bouncer is a friend of his who's in on the gig all, to, all together, and he just lets him go. And, and spoiler alert, uh, they robbed the casino. Did you know that? You're like, oh, I was waiting to watch that movie 20 years ago. <laughs> what I love about the story is not that it's a movie about will they rob the casino. It's about how will they rob the casino because you know it's coming. And all of these plot twists, all these situations, they all weave together. And you think that at one point they're in checkmate, but you realize that, no, it's actually the other way around. Danny's already thought this all the way through. There's actually a bigger plan going on all along. And the whole entire time, we as the audience, we're watching this movie, and we're amazed and confounded at the brilliance of this fictional character, Danny Ocean, how genius he actually is. That at the end of the movie, it all works out. At the end of the movie, there's this iconic scene. I can't play it for copyright reasons, but there's this iconic scene where they're, I don't, they're at this fountain and all of the guys in the, in, the, in the group are just standing there silently looking at this water exploding. They're $15 million richer, and they all one by one walk away happy. What I love about this movie is that it, it is so unlike any other movie that we have today because the ending is satisfying. Like, there's this moment where we're all like, yes, they did it. They took over the casino. You can laugh at that in church. It's okay. Some of you work at a casino. We'll talk about that later. And there's this moment where you realize to be on Danny Ocean's team is to actually win, but to be against him is to be bankrupt and angry. 
I, love, I like this movie a lot. I watched it a lot when I was in high school. I probably shouldn't have, but I did. And I, I watched it a lot. And I think the reason that I watched it a lot is because the two reasons. The first, it's so much like life. Not maybe the knocking off casino bits and all that, but, but it's so much like life in the sense that you have a plan, and yet at every moment it can be frustrated and twists and turns. But it's also so unlike life because for Danny, it seems to work out impossibly good. It is an impossible ending that we all wish and crave and want. We, at the core of who we are, have this internal deep desire for it to work out in our life in the end. Like if you could write your own script, you would be the guy standing at the fountains dressed in the tux, looking into the distance, satisfied because you got what you wanted. Like if that's what we had the power to do, we would write the script in our own lives so that we worked it out in the end. But so much of what bothers us in life, so much of what gets us in life is this question, will it work out for me in the end? So much of what keeps us up at night, so much of of what makes us sleep uh, so short hours because our minds are racing is this haunting question, will, will it work out for me in the end? How does it end? Whatever it is, you can just fill in your blank. How does high school end? Will I have a scholarship? Uh, Will I have a plan? How does college end? Will I graduate on time? Will I have a fiance? Will I have a job? How do my 20s end? Like, will I be able to save the world by Friday? Will I have kids? If I have kids, how do I make sure that at the end of their lives, I don't screw them up by my bad parenting? How does it work out in the end? Does it work out in the end? And you can just fill in the blank, whatever it is in your life. How does your career end? How does your broken relationship, your huge medical expenses, how does the risk of moving communities, how does starting your own business, how does your uncertain job future, how does your unexpected pregnancy, or how does your unexpected infertility, how does your marriage proposal, how does it work out in the end? Does it work out in the end? There's a promise in the Bible that we've considered a, as a church. And if you're new to church, you wonder what we talk about. We talk about this. And I just want to let, let you into what we've, been, what we've been talking about. Last week, we looked at this promise. It's a snapshot. It's in Romans 8, 28, which you're looking at in your copy of God's word. And it's one small group, uh, one small verse written to a group of people who lived in Rome who believed in Jesus in the first century. Uh, if you know anything about being a Jew or being a Christian in the first couple of centuries in Rome you might know that it was a really hard place to live. For starters, the emperor was telling people that he was God. But if you were a Christian, you believed that Jesus was God. And so right away, you were an enemy of a state, the political punching bag for whenever anything went wrong in Rome. This uh, situation as to what Paul, who was a Christian, who was gathering financial support for his work, he was telling the world about Jesus. He had to get on boats and travel uh, on roads to go town to town to tell people who didn't know about Jesus about Jesus. This was pre-YouTube. YouTube would have been really nice for Apostle Paul. He would have dominated that. But he instead was just collecting money, going on ships and going all around. He went on three different journeys. And in the midst of his last journey, he was going to go to what they thought was the ends of the earth, literally to Spain. They thought Spain was the ends of the earth. And he was going to go there and tell them about Jesus. And so he wrote to these Christians in Rome. That's why it's called Romans. And he tells them, hey, I'm going on this trip. Would you help me get there? But Paul knew how difficult it was to be a Christian in Rome. 
And so he takes the opportunity while writing this letter to encourage the people in Rome about the faith that unites them in Jesus Christ to remind them to stand strong in the midst of uh, difficult days. The people in Rome must have been asking the same questions that Paul knew we asked today. Does following Jesus really work? Can he really change the world? Is it worth it to follow Jesus if it means being misunderstood, marginalized, or maligned? Like, the Romans were asking the question, does it work out in the end? And this is what Paul says. Look at this. Uh, I've been put on the screen for you who couldn't Google it. Here's what it says. Paul says this, and we know. Can you all just play along with me? I'm going to ask you to repeat something. Can you say that phrase, we know, with me? We know. We know. This is like a guarantee. This is a promise. This is certain. We know it. That for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. That is a huge promise. That is a massively exciting guarantee that all things will work together for those who love God and are called by him. That's a promise that is packed with power. Whatever our challenge, whatever our hurdle, whatever our fill in the blank might be, that if we love God and follow him, it will all work out in the end. Doesn't that sound, I mean, let's just be honest, doesn't that sound a little pie in the sky, a little too good to be true? Like you're, you're sitting there looking at the bottom of the coupon saying like, but what's the catch? Like how many days do I have to redeem this by? Is this already expired? This is already expired. Why do we save expired coupons? Why did we save this one? Well, actually, if you're asking that question, there are a couple boundaries that hem this promise in. I think of this as a square. There are four conditions to this promise. Actually, Paul lays them out right there. And um, an old pastor who pastored in Philadelphia named James Montgomery Boyce pointed this out, and I just want to refer him to you here. Four very brief things we need to know about this promise lest we extend this the wrong way. The first boundary um, is that not everyone gets to claim this promise. No, all things work together for good. Notice what it says. For those who love God. And then on the backside, for those who are called according to his purpose. It works together for good for those who have a relationship with God. And you might be sitting there scratching your head going, that doesn't seem fair. But that's how your promises work too. You only give promises to people that you have a relationship with. And it's the same with God. God says, if you have a relationship with me, here's the promise, here's the guarantee, it's going to work out in the end. The second boundary is, is simply this. Good doesn't get to be defined by us. We want to say that, you know, my marriage is going to work out with three and a half kids and a dog who's very, you know, obedient and a house that is paid for and a car that is nicer than everybody else's on the block. That's good for me. But good is actually defined by who in this verse? By God. Good is God's idea. It's according to his purpose, which means that we don't get to fill in the blank with a good outcome. We only get to give God our inputs. We only get to give God our situations. We only get to give God the stuff of our life. And he takes that thing, that situation, and he turns it into his good for his purpose. What's his purpose? His purpose is the redemption of his creation. God is working to restore all things that were broken as a result of sin. The third boundary is along the same line of reasoning, that God takes even the bad things in the world 
God takes even the bad, you got to listen real closely to this. God takes even the bad things in the world and he can turn them and use them for good purposes. One thing this verse does not mean is that God endorses evil. God recognizes that death is still bad, disease is still evil, sickness is still bad, dysfunctions and breakdowns in relationship are still not what God wants. But yet, he is able to turn evil on its head. And what evil is supposed to do to destroy, God can take it and turn it to help it build. And so God takes even the bad things in the world and can use them for his purposes. And finally, the last boundary is this, is that we don't always feel like God is working all things together for good. Any Christians in the room know this? I don't know if they're here, and I probably shouldn't say this, but I talked to a man on Friday who had gone through a really hard Thursday just over in the corner of our church. And he goes like this. He says, um, in the midst of his hard situation, he goes, I know all the right things. I know God is sovereign and working this all together, but my heart is broken in like a million pieces and my heart hasn't caught up to my mind yet. We get that, right? We get those moments where like we know. That's what he says, we know. But we don't always feel. We're a feeling culture. Talk to any millennial about what they believe, and they'll say, I just feel. <laughs> and the translation for those of you who are, like, born in the 40s, 50s, maybe 30s, is, like, this is my firm foundation. You think it's weak. I just feel. That's, like, for a millennial, like, this is truth. All right? We, but we were feeling people. We're feeling people. And, and yet, what does Paul tell us about this promise? You don't feel it. You don't always feel it, but, but, but we know, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. So those are the boundaries. If you're in a relationship with God, if you can submit to his ultimate end, if you understand that the evil that you're working through is still evil, but God can turn that evil into good, and if you can stick that out even when it doesn't feel like it's true, but you know that it's true, here's the unlimited blessing in the midst of this type of promise. Check this out. All things will work together for good. All of them. No matter your situation, no matter if you're feeling great about life and you kind of feel like everything's working out, God's already got you covered no matter what, and even those moments of doubt and despair or discouragement or even moments when you're bored, all things God can work out together for good for those who love him. The promise is that a Christian knows that God is able to take every situation we face and make it work out to God's advantage, and that's a promise. You can bank on that. You can bank on it an interesting turn of phrase, right? You can bank on it. We don't really get this because our banks are on our phones and everything's on our phones these days, but back in the day, do you remember this? You had to take your check to a bank. You had to hand it over to somebody and they give you money. I did this the other day. My teller, actually, she shows up at our church every once in a while and I had to confess to her. I gave her a check. I said, I don't know what to do with this. <laughs> I really didn't. I, 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 she did something with it. I still don't know what to do with it. She just took it. She gave me money. It was great. You can bank on it as this promise. It's a, it's a promise that there is something securing this promise on the backside of it. It occurred to me as I was thinking about this that all of our business transactions in this world are all dealt on the basis of a promise. Very little business gets done with actual guarantees. Uh, 
You write a check to somebody. That's a promise that the money's there. You swipe your credit card. It's like, hey, I'll pay you later, right? Uh, you, you, you go and you buy a house. You get a mortgage, and mortgages and loans are issued based upon the promise of future payment. Even I was thinking about this the other day. Uh, when Kristen and I bought our first house, uh, we were something like 23 years old, and it was, it was an amazing time in our life, and we went and we saw this, the perfect place. Like, it's like 900 square feet, right? And... Uh, we walked through the house. We were like, this is great. What do we do? And the real estate agent said, well, you got to put down some what's called good faith money. Good faith money. And we said, well, great. How much is that? And they said, well, whatever you want to put down. We said, how about $100? <laughs> Tells you a little bit about the house, right? And um, the principle of that good faith money was it was supposed to communicate to the seller like, hey, there's more where that came from. Right? <laughs> That's what it was supposed to communicate. Fortunately, we actually knew the people buying the house, uh, we were buying the house from, and so they took the money. I still laugh, our good faith money, the $100 bill, just one Benjamin, promise it. I promise we will give you the rest. You can bank on it. So here's why I go through all of that, is to tell you, friends, if that's how our relationships work and that's how our business principles work, is that you know a promise based upon the deposit or based upon what's put down in good faith that to understand if this promise is actually true, all you have to do is question God and look at his down payment that is backing this promise up. You want to know if God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose? All you have to do to know that is to look at the good faith money that God put down for us to know that this is true. All you have to do is to look at Jesus. Which brings us to what Easter is all about. Easter is the glorious anniversary of that day when we remember that God keeps his promises. And you can bank on it. You know that because you know the story of Jesus. If we look at Jesus, we might expect that Anyone who claimed to create the world and then inhabited that world would like straight up dominate that world, crush it. Like that person would just crush it in life. Trump would have nothing on him or her. If we look at Jesus, though, our assumption would be that he would rise in popularity, wealth, health, influence. He would amass huge success and followings. But that's not the way it worked out for Jesus, is it? You want to know that God works all things together for good. We look at Jesus' story, and it starts like this. Jesus was born into a poor family to parents who weren't even married yet, and it created a serious scandal. Jesus grew up as a carpenter, but around 30 years old, he started what we call his public ministry. And though Jesus was God and he created all things, he restricted his life to only about a 100-mile radius while on this earth, which I think in Jesus' day would qualify him as a bit of a region rat. Jesus uh, first went to the weekend services at his local synagogue. The first weekend he was a rabbi, he read the scroll. He explained that the scriptures were talking about himself, essentially his coming out party. And instead of welcoming the news with great anticipation, the people looked at him like he was crazy and said, no, 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 we know you. That's Joe's son. Like some, some guy stood up and was like, Mordecai, isn't that Joe's son? 
That's Joe's son. We know you. You're nothing special. We've, we've watched you bang your thumb with a hammer a million times. You're the savior of the world. And they were so angry. Jesus' first sermon, let's call it, caused such a stir that the people took him to the edge of the community where there was a cliff and they were going to throw him over. I'm glad to pastor in Indiana where there are no cliffs. <laughs> and I hope that today you won't push me over any of them. But this is what happened to Jesus is that he had the crowds threatening him. So much so that he had to escape through them to get out of town. As he taught and he did miracles, you'd expect that God who created everything would be able to communicate with his people in a way that they would automatically get it. But if you look at the way Jesus taught his disciples, they rarely ever understood what he was saying. To the Jews, Jesus wasn't Jewish enough. And to the Romans, he wasn't Roman enough. To the religious, he wasn't religious enough. And to the political, he wasn't political enough. He fraternized with the wrong crowd. He healed on the wrong days. He often taught the wrong things. In short, the world saw Jesus and said, you're the wrong Messiah. This is Jesus. God who had come to us, but we did not recognize him. One story on his way to Jerusalem for the last week of Jesus' life, it makes this point perfectly. It's found in Mark's telling of Jesus' life. Notice what happens. This is the like the, the, the Saturday before Jesus' uh, last week here on earth. This is what it says. Uh, Mark tells us, Mark 10. They were on the road. This is Jesus and his disciples and a whole group of people. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were, just note these two words, amazed. And those who followed were afraid. Have you ever been amazed and afraid at the same time? Take Taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, and notice, maybe you can make sense of what Jesus was saying. Maybe you can be a little smarter than the disciples, but listen to this. This is what he said. He predicts this. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. They hear this and they were amazed and afraid. Nobody knew what to do with Jesus. Was he a lunatic? Was he truly God? Jesus said that he was about to walk into the lion's den where he would suffer and die but then rise. No wonder they were amazed and afraid because there was no such teaching like this before. To the disciples' ears, it sounded like, a plot twist that they weren't expecting. Like, Danny, you don't get locked in the bouncer's closet. Like, Jesus, we're going to take over the world. This is the plan. We're going to rule this thing. It's going to be amazing. You're going to heal. There's going to be no more sickness. There's going to be no more disease. We saw you multiply food. Everybody's going to get a hot meal on their table and gas in their car. It's going to be awesome, Jesus. This is not the plan for you to die. Jesus tells them that he had a mission. He had a calling. He had an assignment that was according to God's purpose. He came to give his life as a ransom for many, as a payment for many. And even there, his disciples couldn't make sense of what he was saying. For Jesus to die seemed just like senselessness, senseless evil. But this was Jesus' life, misunderstood and maligned and marginalized. 
So sure enough, Jesus enters Jerusalem. The first day, he's greeted with a hero's welcome. But the next day, on Monday, he goes to the temple, and he has an issue with what is going on there. And he takes to task the leaders of the temple. And on Tuesday, Jesus' money guy, his like booking agent, Judas, um, goes to the one venue that Jesus is displeased with, the temple, and he talks to the people who run the temple and makes a deal with them, cuts a deal for some money for him to hand Jesus over to them. And two days later, after what we now call the Last Supper, Jesus took his disciples to a garden to pray with them. Jesus knew he was about to die, but his disciples were still clueless. They couldn't stay awake to pray with him. They watched as he suffered in agony, as he was on his knees. They saw him sweat drops of blood. They heard the quiver in his voice, Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. In the middle of this prayer comes Judas, his betrayer, along with the Jewish leaders in an army. Jesus is captured and his trial is begun amongst the chief priests and the scribes. And just like he said they would, the trials condemned Jesus to death and they handed him over to the Gentiles, to the Romans. And after much deliberation and contention, Pilate gives in to the demands of the Jews to crucify Jesus, this insurrectionist, this rebel king. And so Jesus is physically beaten. He's spit upon and flogged. And like a vile criminal, he is led to a hill called the Skull where he is publicly executed. And Jesus, on Friday, is crucified. Suffering on the cross, mocked as the king of the Jews, publicly shamed and scorned, all of it suffering, all of it agony, all of it evil, yet we call it Good Friday, the day Jesus died. His body was put lifeless into a tomb. His followers scattered, and probably they were afraid for their own lives. And the movement that Jesus started that Friday as the sun went down and darkness covered the earth, that movement ended. If this is where the story ended, then what Paul says, that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, would be absolutely lunacy. If this is where the story ended, what Paul says in Romans 8.28 would be an absolute foolish sham that we'd really be calling it not Good Friday. We probably wouldn't care about Friday at all. If Jesus just died on the cross and stayed buried in the grave, not one of us would be here today for this hour that we're spending together to, to, to remember the fact that something else happened. If Jesus' story ended here, all of this is for nothing. The promise would be recorded that simply evil exists in the world. It's stronger than God, and at best, all we can hope for is a few moments of ecstasy. Get yours while you can, because we all live and then we die in evil winds. Frederick Nietzsche, the atheist, you hear about him in Easter all the time, right? (laughs) Frederick Nietzsche once said, um, that which doesn't kill us makes us stronger. And he's a great lyricist, I think. What doesn't kill me makes me stronger, stand a little tough. No? Where'd that choir go? (laughs) 
doesn't mean I'm alone. Never mind. I could have gone Kanye, but I didn't. Do you know this idea that that which doesn't kill me makes me stronger? Uh, you know it, but it's wrong. Because what if what happens if that which didn't kill you just beat you up and left you for dead? And I, as a pastor, have seen enough people get sick in the hospital and not make it back. I've seen so much of life to know that sometimes what doesn't kill us leaves us in despair. Sometimes, if I can be really honest, I know that in very particularly challenging moments in life, we wish that that which didn't kill us did. Jesus died. If they were able to kill God, the question is this, what hope is there for me? No, the pain that I feel in this life can't, in that sort of system where just whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger, apart from anything else, it, it, that, and that system just leads me to experience suffering and then despair, to go through hard things and be crushed by it to get diagnoses or to hear news or to lose someone you love and to just be absolutely devastated. Ironically, ironically, for Nietzsche to be right, death itself has to die. The only way that death dies is if it's someone who is stronger than death kills it. The only way that we can trust that that which doesn't kill me makes me stronger is if I have something stronger than death. You track with me? Let me put it in the Bible language for you so maybe you'll, you'll hang with me here. Um, the only way that all things work together for good is if at the end, death doesn't win. Evil can't win. And so the reason that Paul is right, and Lord help me, the reason that Nietzsche's not totally wrong is because at the moment that Jesus' body was sealed in the grave, it was not the end of the story. It was just a plot twist that was sucking us in a little deeper to understand the pure brilliance of the one who created the plot in the first place. Because there was a guy inside the vault, tomb. I got, went back to Ocean's Eleven in my mind. There was a guy inside the tomb who was about to blow up the thing that the tomb was enclosing and holding hostage. There was someone inside that grave who was ready to take down the house by beating it at its own game. Like, how do you bankrupt evil? You gut it from the inside out. And how do you defeat death? You rob its grave. And how do you conquer the lion's den? You go in and you come out the roaring lion. And so there's more to the story. Thank God. I want to invite the choir to come back up because I'm feeling this, like, inspiration hit me. I'm about to start preaching, and I feel like we need a choir. If anybody knows how to play the organ, that'd be good, too. Look at this. Look at how it ends. This is Mark chapter 16. It's so, it's so good. When the Sabbath was passed, this is Sunday, the day after, two days after Good Friday, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Siloam bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early, on the first day of the week, 
when the sun had risen, faithfulness of God ever present all the more, they went to the tomb. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had already been rolled back. It was very large. At entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. It's one of those moments in the Bible where you want to go like, okay. He said, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. And this is so important because Mary, Mary, and Salome were not going to a doctor's office that day. They weren't going to a place where there was a receptionist waiting for them to see them. They didn't walk in and say, oh, hi, Mary, Mary, Salome, the doctor will see you in just a moment. He's expecting you. But here at the empty grave, Jesus left a receptionist, someone to pass along the news to the people who weren't expecting any news because they thought he was dead. And he tells them, you're looking for someone. And this is just like such, for me, proof that this really happened. He says, you're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, the same guy in that synagogue on his first Sunday as a rabbi in Nazareth that those people, Mordecai, pointed to him and said, hey, this is Joe's son. No, Jesus of Nazareth. Yes, the very same Jesus who was crucified. Not some other guy that we switched bodies with. Not someone else who just, you know, looked like him or was his fake twin brother. But you're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, the one who two days ago was put on a cross and died. He is not here. He's risen. Some of you are just like me. You don't believe it until you see it. Like the Cubs winning the World Series. Some of you went to bed that night and you heard about it, but you didn't believe it until you saw it. We're people. People are all the same no matter what generation. And look at what the angel tells Mary, Mary, and Salome. He says, see the place where they laid him. If I had time, I would have backed you up to Mark 15 where it says, Mary saw the place where they laid Jesus. She saw it twice, once where he was in the grave being sealed up and once where he was unsealed from the grave and not there. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And so they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Again, amazed and afraid. Amazed and afraid. Having always asked this question, does it work out in the end, Jesus? If you die, what's going to happen? And now asking the question, did he just make it work out in the end? And they ran to tell the disciples. Friday, it seemed like the end. But Jesus had told him, I'm going. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be beaten, flogged, crucified, and killed. But in three days, I will rise. You can bank on it. And you can bank on it. Because the tomb is empty.
In a world where God is omnipresent, there is one place in this world we know that Jesus is not, and it's the grave. Because he is not here, he's risen. And that, my friends, is what we celebrate this morning, that he really died on Friday. The whole world saw it. And he really was alive on Sunday. People saw the empty grave, which means this, which means that Easter is the greatest heist story ever told, where Jesus bankrupted the devil, satisfied God's wrath, and opened the doors that all who believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus looks at death and says, death, where's your victory? Death, where's your sting? Jesus looks at those who have put him on the cross and looked at Rome and said, Rome, what you got, Rome? You tried to kill me, you tried to inconvenience me, you tried to put me in the grave, but I have a God who is bigger than you with a plan that is greater than yours, who will work all things together for good according to his purposes. So come at me with your cross, Rome. I have a God who's got this. Nothing's out of his hands because nothing's out of his hands. We have a God. We have a God who says this, that you can beat on me, spit on me, kill me, mock me, but I'm going to work it out for good. You can betray me, but I'll find a way to befriend you. You can keep your distance from me, but I'm going to come down from heaven to earth to close the difference between us. And for those who love our God, he is making it all work out in the end. Amen. But on that Easter Sunday, God didn't just rob the grave for himself. Like God didn't make, he doesn't do this. He doesn't make the world work out for himself. Do you know what I mean? Like, like sometimes in our twisted human creaturely thoughts, we think, yeah, God, I can trust that you're going to work all things together good according to your purpose. But how do I know that your purpose is good for me? And the reason that we know this, that for those who love God, all things do work out according to the purpose of God for good is that God didn't just raise Jesus from the dead on Easter Sunday just to save face. He wasn't embarrassed that his creation was lost and he had to redeem it. He didn't raise Jesus just to save face. Listen, he did it to save you. So do you, do you have a problem in your life that you don't know if God can work it out in the end. Friends, look to the empty grave. Is there a, a, a situation, an it, a blank in your life that you need to trust in God in but you don't know how? Oh, friends, look to the empty grave. Do you need assurance that God keeps his word? Look to the empty grave. You, you need good faith money from God? Look to the empty grave. Because for every illness, there's an empty grave. For every doubt, there's an empty grave. For every heartache, there's an empty grave. For every bill, there's an empty grave. And for every human, earthly death, we look at Jesus' death and we say, there is an empty grave.